Let us open the precious word of God to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It would be very easy in these first eight verses to spend a great deal of time, but I don't know how profitable that would be for you. I appreciate these first eight verses because they lift up the God of heaven and make him untouchable as far as the reasoning of wicked scorners that would try to object against his judgments against them. Commentators say that these first eight verses may be the toughest section of the book of Romans. We will just trust the Lord to make them simple to us. Let me read the first eight verses to you of Romans 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. There are four objections raised by Paul in a dialogue form of instruction, and then he gives the answers to all four objections. That is these eight verses. And a very effective way of teaching is to raise the objections of your opponent and then to answer them. The objections against Paul's doctrine are in verses 1, 3, 5, and 7. Paul's answers to those objections are in verses 2, 4, 6, and 8. This is the way that he teaches here and in several other places. He teaches this way in Romans 6 and 7 and 9 and other places by raising the objections that his opponents would have. And it's a very effective way of teaching so that you don't think that there's loose ends when Paul gets done. Because Paul takes the loose ends and ties them down. There should have been a respite at the end of chapter 2. And we could have gone immediately into the presentation of the gospel that Paul's going to start in verse 21. But there's more loose ends to tie up. There's more objections by the Jews for Paul to answer. Please remember that when you read Romans, he is dealing with a heresy of his day, of Jewish legalism. 
the Jews thought that they had an advantage over the Gentiles and could and would be saved without God's grace through Jesus Christ. They believed that they could be saved by virtue of their family tree, that they were Abraham's seed, that they were circumcised, that they had the law of God, that they had the temple of God, that they were God's special adopted people on earth, and therefore the rules of righteousness and coming judgment didn't apply to them like those rules applied to the Gentiles. So Paul has to spend the majority of this book defeating a heresy that we don't see very often, though the Lord in the past year gave us an example of it. Of someone chasing Moses instead of Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, Paul condemned the Gentiles. Pagan, idolatrous Gentiles. And how that God had rewired them and given them over to sodomy and all sort of foolish sins that were not convenient, even though they understood in their consciences that men that did such things deserved to die, they did them anyway, and they took pleasure in them that did them. That's chapter 1. Romans chapter 2 is 29 verses long, and the whole chapter is committed to condemning the Jews, who would sit in judgment and would have said amen for everything that was taught in chapter 1, because the Jews considered themselves far superior to the Gentiles. They weren't idolaters. They worshipped Jehovah. They had the Scriptures when the Gentiles had no Scripture. And so Paul takes them apart in Romans chapter 2. And we've been through those verses already. Now we come to chapter 3, and there's a response that Paul is going to propose. It's a, it's a figure of speech, and it's a way of rhetoric. It's a way of teaching. To go ahead and raise the objection of your opponent before he even has a chance to say it, and then go ahead and answer it. And if you're thorough about it, then when you get done, there's nothing that can be said more. Because the whole issue has been dealt with, including your opponent's objections. It is the best way of presenting any subject. Present it in its positive form, then take their objections and answer them. This is what Paul does. It's a shame that Paul has to continue to argue. But he is going to completely and finally answer skeptical and scornful Jews. He has to systematically destroy any confidence that they would have that there is salvation outside Christ or that there are things to be added to the finished work of Christ for salvation. So that's why we have extra verses for him to take them apart even more thoroughly. Paul will show us the Latin rhetoric tool of reductio ad absurdum, which is reduce an argument to the point of absurdity. He's going to do it twice. He's going to do it in 6 and 8. Raise your opponent's opposition or his objection or his question and then take it to a logical extreme to where it's absurd. A consistent logical extreme. You don't need to say anything else. It is self-condemning. Romans chapter 3. 
verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Here are two questions that the Jews would raise and Paul raised the question for them. Paul, based on what you taught in Romans chapter 2, you reduced us, us Israelites, us Jews, us children of Abraham, you reduced us to the same level as the Gentiles. You put us on the same playing field with Gentiles. That God is going to judge us the same way that He judges Gentiles. That He is not going to show any respect of persons for us being Jews. That's ridiculous and you know it. God has always made a difference with the Jews. We are His special people. The Gentiles are not. He passed over all those Gentiles to choose us to be His special people. Paul forms the argument this way. What advantage then hath the Jew? The objector is saying, Paul, you're wrong. What you have taught in chapter 2 is wrong. Because there is a difference. There is an advantage. And you've taken away every advantage. You've reduced us to the Gentiles. We're all going to be judged by God equally by our works. There's going to be no special treatment chosen to God's special people who have always been specially treated. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Do you mean we circumcised all our little eight-day-old boys for them to become citizens of our nation? And members of the covenant that God made with Abraham and that God confirmed with Moses? And there's no profit in that? This is the objection. Paul raises it for them. They're not speaking in verse 1. He is speaking for them in verse 1. It's called a prolepsis, or it's called a procatalepsis, in which you take your opponent's objection, verbalize them for them in their absence. You're hoping that they're hearing, and then you go ahead and answer it. It's a wonderful way of teaching. We're going to click right through four objections that a Jewish scorner would raise against Paul's doctrine, and he's going to refute them. He's going to do it again in chapter 9. He does it in other places. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Chapter 6, verse 1. He does it often. It's a very efficient way of writing. And when you consider how short Romans actually is compared to the average systematic theology, it's quite efficient. Bless the God of heaven. He doesn't need a chapter on each one of these. There's so many different things that we could gather from this because you know what? None of us are dealing with Jewish legalism that I know of. However, we do have skeptical questions that arise from time to time that we want to crush. We want to be warned by these verses about our stupid questions. Two of them are in verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Paul, if your doctrine is right in chapter 2, then the Jews have no advantage and that there is no profit to being circumcised. Paul's answer in verse 2. Much every way. What advantage do Jews have? Much every way. Any way you want to measure a person being born in this world, the Jews have it better than the Gentiles. Paul grants a concession when he can. Here's what, Let me chase a short trail. When you are dealing with someone and you can concede that you are in agreement on something, concede it. Amen. Give it to them. Paul gives it to the Jews. Much every way. What advantage then hath the Jew? 
much every way. What do you want to think of when you try to explain Paul's answer? There were advantages to being a Jew. From the providential protection that they had by God's care for them, and the prosperity that he gave them when they were obeying him, to the dietary and sanitary laws that he gave them, from the monotheistic knowledge of Jehovah, I am that I am, to a detailed sacrificial system in which he was delighted, there's no end to all the blessings. You had so many things that a Gentile did not have when he was born. And so Paul concedes it. And good argumentation is to concede a point where you can to secure their understanding that you are fair. Because, see, they're trying to make Paul out not to be fair. That there was no advantage to being a Jew. And Paul's saying there were advantages to being a Jew. Just not the advantage you think. He's not saying that yet. The advantage they want is salvation. The advantage that, the advantage that Paul's going to concede to them is everything short of salvation. But, uh, you know, it would soften things up and warm things up a little bit. For Paul to concede this, that much in every way there were there was an advantage to being a Jew. We don't have to list all those advantages. Why would you want to be born in any other nation compared to being born a Jew? What a rich family heritage. What a rich future. Based on righteousness, of course, which the Jew didn't want to admit. They thought it was unconditional. But we'll get to that in a moment. Rich to be born a Jew. And circumcision to to bring you into the covenant that God made with Abraham and confirmed with Moses and made you a citizen of that nation on your eighth day. There were great blessings. Paul said much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. He makes a concession. There's lots of advantages to being a Jew. However, the greatest advantage is God gave you the scriptures. He didn't say, God is going to unconditionally save all you Jews. He said, God gave you the scriptures. No other nation had them. Do I need to turn you to verses, and I don't think I do, where the Bible plainly tells us that no other nation on earth had the inspired scriptures of the Old Testament but the Jews. It was a huge blessing. I'll read you just two verses from Psalm 147, 19 and 20. They're my favorites. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. That is sovereign power. But let's not try to miss any sovereignty of God in these verses, since you might have thought me a little sacrilegious last last Sunday about the final verses of chapter 2. The sovereignty of God is right here. That God made choices. He hath not dealt so with any nation. But he did that nation. He gave them his word. I get so many questions through our website that ask things like this. You believe so strongly in the King James Bible. Then what's the word of God in China? Where in God's creation... And in the word of God, did he ever promise that he was going to give a Bible in every language on earth? Hello? Every other nation outnumbered Israel in the times of Moses. The Bible tells us that. Deuteronomy 7. Israel was the smallest of all nations. Do you mean 
He was so prejudiced, he only gave the word of God to the smallest nation in population. Amen. Love it. Or suffer it. That's the God of heaven. Rejoice in it. Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had the word of God. They knew what pleased God. They knew his judgments. They knew his promises. They knew his blessings and they knew his curses, didn't they? Deuteronomy 28 makes them very plain, both sides of that coin. They had it all. So Paul answers the first objection with a concession by narrowing it to the scriptures. He did not give them what they wanted. That there was salvation for everyone born to Abraham's family tree or that was circumcised. That's not said. That's left unsaid. And the silence is deafening. So they bring up this objection. Verse 3. Okay, Paul. You've given us the fact that there are many advantages to being a Jew. And that we've had the scriptures and others have not had them. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? You've been picking on us all the way through chapter 2. We'll grant you that some... (laughs) They didn't listen very well, did they? Follow follow the words. Look at the objection that Paul formulates, knowing how their mind would be formulating it. For what if some did not believe? Okay, we'll grant you that there might be some bad Jews. But if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God is still going to keep His promises to us. Because those promises He made to us were conditioned only upon His faithfulness. Only upon His promise. Only upon His truthfulness. Therefore, just because some don't believe... That isn't going to stop God from from fulfilling everything He's ever promised for us, and that includes eternal life. That is what's understood in the argument and the answer that we're about to read. What if some did not... This is not Paul. This is not Paul wondering a, a question. This is Paul taking on an objection, because he's going to say, God forbid, in the next verse. He is taking on an objection... Of a, of a skeptical Jew or a scorner that wants to oppose what he taught in chapter 2. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Fatalism is in Romans 3, 3. This is unconverted elect, believed by the Jews. So what if some didn't believe? That isn't the issue of going to heaven. It's whether God is faithful. The faith of God is God's faith in the sense of faithfulness and truthfulness. You say, how do you know that? By reading the next verse. God forbid, yea, let those who believe in God be true. No, let God be true. The the thing that's under question here in the words the faith of God is God's truthfulness. And God is true. Paul answers it in four, so we know what we, he means by the, by the genitive phrase, the faith of God. Is it God the object of faith, or is it God the producer of faith? Is it God's faithfulness himself? That's, that's the question there. It's God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness himself, that they're falling back on. 
some of us don't have faith. So what? God has the faith. God's faithful. God's true. God's going to save us anyway. Is what verse 3, the objection that's being raised. It doesn't matter if some of our nation hasn't believed those scriptures that you said were our great blessing in verse 2, because those scriptures contain promises that God's made to us forever and ever. They made them, they made them unconditional and they made them perpetual. And those that follow Jewish fables in our own Christian world believe the same thing. The promises to the Jews are unconditional and they're perpetual. And that is why there is so much emphasis on that little piece of sand in the Middle East called Palestine by the Romans and made a province of their empire and those who want to send money over there to reestablish that nation because they believe God has not yet fulfilled His unconditional Abrahamic covenant for that land. And it's perpetual. It's to be forever because God used the word forever. But do you know what? As soon as unconditional covenant falls apart, then you know that the forever is only as long as you obey. And when you read the Bible, the land was only given to Israel as long as they would obey. Amen. That's chasing a little rabbit because the land isn't under consideration here. It's salvation here. They thought heaven was theirs. Abraham was gathered to his people. Isaac was gathered to his people. Jacob was gathered to his people. Joseph was gathered to his people. They were all gathered to their... Oh no, not all of them. Just the ones that the Bible says were gathered to their people. But they thought they were going to go there. Because of God's performance. So they reason in verse 3, What if some did not believe? So what if we've had a few problems in our nation? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God's faithfulness, God's promises, God's truthfulness, what God has said about us, that is still going to hold true in spite of us. God forbid. How's that for a quick answer? God forbid. He doesn't appeal to himself. I don't think so. If Paul said, I don't think so, it just doesn't carry the weight of the two words, God forbid. He appeals to God Himself, His nature, His Scriptures, whatever aspect of God you want to think about, God does not agree with your sentiments expressed in verse 3. God forbid that He is going to do something for you while you're sinning against Him. This is His answer. God forbid, yea, let God be true. And But every man a liar. Not some men, not some not believing, but every man a liar. Isn't that what he's taught all the way from chapter 1 and verse 18? He hasn't just talked about some Jews and some Gentiles. He's talked about all Jews and Gentiles. And so here he goes back to that fact in verse 4. Let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 51, verse 4, where we read earlier this morning, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. God is true. Everything God wrote in His Word is true. And if you try to call Him into question about what He has promised and what He's going to do, there is one axiom that we start with. God is true. God is faithful. 
God is righteous. God does what is right. The problem is the next clause. But every man is a liar. Not just some. Every man's a liar. Therefore, God, in judging your nation, is justified in judging your nation and your people because every one of you is a liar. He is true. You have broken the condition. He is going to judge you accordingly. God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. See, they only said some in verse 3. Paul said it's all men in verse 4. And the only men we're dealing with here are the Jews, not the Gentiles. We are dealing with the Jews. They said some. Paul said all. They said God is true. God is faithful. And He's going to save us in spite of us. Paul said, God forbid. God is true. But you are all liars. And God is justified in His judgments and His sayings that He's going to bring against all of you. And He's going to be clear when He is judged. Now over there in Psalm 51, this is just a short little trail. Over in Psalm 51, it says that God would be clear when He judges. And here it says that He might overcome when He is judged. That is Holy Spirit allowed elaboration on a text that we thank Him for. Because God is just when He judges, and God is found to be just when others judge Him for His judgment. That's the Holy Spirit giving us both sides of that coin. God judges, and He's just in His judgment, but when others try to judge Him, they find Him to be clear in the matter that He did not do anything wrong. They're both stated by reading Psalm 51 and by reading Romans chapter 3. Let me give you one more example while we're on this little short trail. In Psalm 68 it says that Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven and gave gifts to the church. Then when it comes over to... Let's not get that backwards just for the sake of always wanting to be correct. He received gifts for men in Psalm 68, verse 18. But in Ephesians 4, where that passage is quoted, He gave gifts to men. You say, well, receiving and giving are are two opposite things. No, He didn't receive them from men and give them to men. He received them from God and gave them to men. And by putting both passages together, we get the whole transaction from God to Christ to men. Just aside, back to verse 4. God forbid that you would even think such a thing that God is going to unconditionally save you Jews because you think that only some did not believe. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Isn't God's covenant, isn't God's promise and God's sureness in fulfilling His part of the deal going to save us? No. God forbid. God is true, but you are all liars. And He is justified in His his judgment and the judgment that I have taught in chapter 2. He's justified in all of it. And He's going to overcome when He is judged. Because you're not going to find any fault in Him. More could be said. We could hang on this verse for another hour, but it's not going to help us much more. That is the argument. That is the objection. That is the answer. They're not content with that. They understand it. 
They're not going to say anything to counteract the explanation I just gave you. They're going to go to another level of their argument against Paul. So watch that. As we go to verse 5, instead of them asking for clarification because they perfectly well understood that he had just cut them all off, they're going to go to a deeper level of depravity. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. In case you're starting to wonder, is this the Apostle Paul losing his mind? Asking these questions and then answering them. It sounds like Paul might be very confused about the doctrine of salvation toward the Jews. No, he's telling you, I speak as a man. What kind of a man? A natural Jew wanting to object against his theology and the doctrine of salvation there because the Jew thinks he's got special privileges. Right. I'm, t- I'm writing for another person. I'm speaking as a man. I'm not writing as an inspired apostle. Right? Yes, it is all inspired. But I'm not writing in declaring truth. I'm creating my opponent so that you can hear the objection and then I'm going to answer it. So he says that. I speak as a man. I hope that every one of us will remember those little words. I speak as a man. Whenever you start questioning God, you're speaking as a man. You're starting to talk like Mrs. Job. Christianity is a settled religion. You are not going to expose it, help it, open it, elaborate on it by your questions. It's a settled religion. It's been settled in the Bible for a long time. That's why we say God said it, that settles it. If God said it, that settles it. Tell your mind to shut up. It's not really your mind. When you get into these kind of questions, it's the devil. It's not really your mind. It's the devil. He's always raised questions. Yea, hath God said? That wasn't Eve. That was the devil. Eve, listen to the question. And when you start playing around with questions like that, you're going to get yourself in trouble. That's not how you arrive at truth. Questions don't help you arrive at truth. Do you know what helps you arrive at truth? Read and believe. That helps you arrive at truth. It's already settled. It's already been put in writing. Are you going to improve on it and write the 67th book to the Bible? I speak as a man. Okay, this man that Paul's creating, what is this argument in verse 5? Well, Paul, if our advantage is only the Bible, and that Bible that told us that we were going to get saved by God's faithfulness and His covenant to Abraham, and you're cutting us all out as liars, and God gets justified by condemning us, even though He has a covenant to save us, then our, our sins... Give glory to God. Our unrighteousness commends God's righteousness. That isn't fair. What kind of a character is God? How righteous is He to take vengeance on me when it is my unrighteousness that exalts His Scriptures? Thank you, Paul, for telling us that the Scriptures are ours and that they're a great gift from God. We agree. Amen, brother Paul. Two. But now you're telling us that we're all liars and that we've broken the covenant and that God is just in judging every one of us chosen people? 
Yes. Well, if that's true, then all the glory of God that he's getting from judging us based on our unrighteousness, that isn't fair. God's getting glory from us sinning, and yet he's still going to take vengeance? If God benefits from us Jews sinning against him, how can he take vengeance against us? Is their argument. You've never heard arguments like this? If I was to believe in the doctrine of election like you, then I would believe that we could just go out and do anything we wanted to. How could God send me to hell because I wanted to go to heaven, but he wouldn't let me go to heaven? You've never heard that? Oh, you haven't talked to anybody about election, huh? Because you talk to anybody about election, they're going to start coming up with stuff just like 3-5 and 3-7 and 3-8. 3 back to 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what you've just told us, that God is true, and everything that He says in His Bible and that you've taught us in chapter 2 applies to us because we're all liars, then God is getting His righteousness commended by our unrighteousness. How can He take vengeance on us? We're His people. I speak as a man, Paul said. What is his answer in 6? Does it sound like his answer in verse 4? God forbid. God forbid that you would even ask the question, is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance when he has his righteousness commended by your unrighteousness? If your sins bring greater glory to God, he still doesn't owe you any favor because he has so arranged the order of the universe that his righteousness is exalted by your sins against his righteousness. He doesn't owe you anything. He still is going to apply His righteous law against you. He is still going to apply the Scriptures that He gave to you Jews, which you have violated, every single one of you, and He is going to get justified in the matter, but He is not unrighteous by wrecking vengeance on you. Why didn't they already know that? He had already wrecked vengeance on them repeatedly, from the book of Judges all the way to the Romans, who were oppressing them at the very moment Paul's writing this. If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? Do you know how Paul answers this one? He just says, if your thinking is even partly right, how will God ever be able to judge the world? Because he's going to get glory from every single person he judges. His righteousness is going to be commended by every Gentile that is condemned for Gentile unrighteousness. How will God ever be able to judge the world if... He gets, if he has his righteousness commended by the unrighteousness of the sinners he judges. That's all Paul says to that argument. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? They know that God was going to judge the world because their scriptures declare it from the beginning. Did Solomon say that at the end of Ecclesiastes? Did Solomon teach the nation of Israel you know, about a thousand years in front of this chapter, when he said in the last verse of Ecclesiastes 12, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Okay, that was taught there, and it's not the only place it was taught. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? If God is limited, if God is limited by this way, we are his chosen people, we have the scriptures, and when God judges according to the scriptures, he gets justified and we get condemned, then he benefits from judging us. How can he take vengeance on us?
because that's unrighteous. That isn't fair for God to benefit from our sins and yet take vengeance on the sins from which he benefited. Paul's simple answer, God forbid your thinking, how would he ever be able to judge the world? Did God get glory when he burned up Sodom and Gomorrah? He had set a man and a woman. He made Eve for Adam, not Steve. And so when he burned up those two cities, he was glorified by their sins, and his righteousness was exalted, but he still did it anyway. And that's the same way he's going to judge the world. He is going to get glory from us. We know that. We know that, and I hope we know it so well that we would never think we're going to be some exception to God's rule like the Jews did. We know that the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Now, was that written in the New Testament before the Jews could lay hold of it? Or was that written in the Old Testament and they should have remembered it? They should have remembered it. How shall God judge the world? Verse 7. One of them gets a little bolder. And, and makes it personal. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie... Remember, Paul's called every man a liar. Every one of these Jews is a liar. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory... Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? In verse 5, it was calling his character into, into question. In verse 7, it's calling his fairness personally into question. If God's truth is exalted by my lying, David said that, didn't he? David said, I have sinned against thee, and thee only have I sinned. And because of my sins, thou art justified in all that you have said. It exalted God's integrity. It exalted God's judgment. It exalted God's character by David's sins. And so this man says in verse 7, If the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? These are questions against the sovereignty of God. It isn't fair if my sins, if my lying has helped his truth, why am I punished for my lying? Let God be true, but every man a liar. Because his commandment is, liars get punished. That's why. But Paul doesn't need to say that. He doesn't say it in verse 6, and he doesn't say it in verse 8. It's to be understood, because his argument is shorter than that. He isn't going to waste time explaining it to a man that's already admitted the lying. Notice the objector in verse 7 is saying, For if the truth of God hath abound, for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie, he admits the lie. Well, that's all you've got to admit and you're done. You're cooked. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? This is a man taking it personally and saying it is not fair for God to benefit and his truth to benefit from me as a Jew because by my lying I confirm his truthfulness in his word. He's getting a benefit from me as one of his people. It's not fair that he should do that to me. Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? How can it be a sin when God benefits from it? But the only reason he benefits from it is because he gave a commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not lie. And when you lie, you bring his judgment upon you, and you justify every commandment he ever made against liars. 
You're still a liar. You're still under the judgment of his word. Wicked men will never. Do you know what the problem is right here? There should have been humility and repentance. This man should have, it should have been verse 30 of chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 30 should have been the Jews humbling and repenting of their sins like David did in Psalm 51. But instead, well then what you're saying, there's no advantage to being a Jew. Yes, you have a few advantages. The main one was the scriptures. Well, what if some of us didn't believe? God's still going to keep all of his promises toward us because we're his special people. Oh, no, he isn't, because you have proven the truthfulness of his promises, because you've broken the covenant, which was a conditional covenant. But if that's true, then God benefits from our unrighteousness. And how in the world can he do anything to us when he benefited from our unrighteousness? Well, if that argument is true, Paul would say, then God can't even judge the world. Well, it just isn't fair that he would do that to me if his truth hath abounded more by my lying How can he take vengeance on me, or how can he punish me? Paul's answer. Now here it gets a little tricky to watch. Take out what's in the parentheses, just like you're supposed to know about English. Take out what's in the parentheses for a moment. And Paul would, Paul's going to answer with another question. Can't we do a little better than your objection? And not rather? Let us do evil, that good may come. Instead of you saying, if God's truth has more abounded through my lie, why am I still judged as a sinner? Let's take it a step further, and why don't you just agree to this one? Can you agree to this one? Since you're you're making a good point that God's benefiting from your lying and it's not really fair for Him to judge you, then we just ought to have a religion of let's sin all that we can so that we can work more good for God. That is is Paul's answer. He is reducing the argument in verse 7 to absurdity. And he's doing it in a very few words formed in another question that any Jew would understand. Oh, that is logical absurdity. That is stupid. If they had any sense at all. Their argument, verse 7. If God's truth is benefited by me lying, how can God punish me as a sinner? Paul said, if your logic is true in verse 7, then we ought to take it a step further. And not rather, shouldn't we go on to this religion? Let us do evil that good may come. Instead of you just complaining that it's not fair, then let's really heap up the goodness of God, and let's really exalt Him, and let's really make His truth abound by telling more lies. In parentheses, Paul said that what he used in that verse was not made up. There were men that accused him of that. They slandered him. He says it twice, but he uses different words, and that's because you're supposed to know a difference in the words that are used inside those parentheses. First of all, he was slandered that that's what he preached. That's by men who lied about what he preached. Second of all, he says, and as some affirm that we say, that is men who heard him, misunderstood him, and unknowingly misrepresented him. That's the distinction we need to make between slander, which is lying about a person, and affirming they had heard him say something in his presentation the sovereignty of God, and they accused Paul of teaching, well, we just might as well live any way we want to because it doesn't matter. Have you ever run into anybody like that? I've already said it once. I'm asking it twice. I I usually know when I repeat myself. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, if I was to believe in election, then I could go out and live any way I wanted to. 
Because it wouldn't make any difference. If I'm elect, I'm going to go to heaven no matter what I do. And if I'm not elect, I'm going to go to hell no matter what I do. So I might as well do whatever I want to do. Do you know what Paul says about any kind of thinking like that? Whose damnation is just. If they ever take the sovereignty of God and and rest the sovereignty of God to teach that you can live any way you want to, their damnation is just. See, that's outside the parentheses as well. That is the end of the fourth answer to the fourth objection that was raised against Paul's doctrine. He tied up a bunch of loose ends, and he crushed any questioning of the sovereignty of God. Look at chapter 9 with me for a moment. We, we need to end this, but look at chapter 9. He is going to come back to this kind of reasoning. This is a short, short introduction to what he is going to cover in chapters 8 through 11. In chapters 8 through 11, he's going to take the Jews apart in detail. He is going to explain about the bringing in of the Gentiles, the casting off of the Jews. He's going to explain it in here. It's just in eight verses, but it's all about the sovereignty of God. They questioned him here, and they're going to question in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. When somebody reads that, that doesn't love the sovereignty of God, how do they react? They react the way verse 14 describes. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. (coughs) Is that the typical reaction to that verse? How do they say it in America where they're they're too ignorant to use the word unrighteousness? That isn't fair. That isn't fair. Paul says, God forbid. Then he goes on and explains some of the things that God had said in the Scriptures to Moses. Then he gives the personal illustration of Pharaoh. Then we come to verse 19. And I thank God for verse 19. I remember the work that God did in me, with me, because of verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, he's raising an objection, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? A different shade of 3-7. A different shade of 3-5. How can he still find fault with me? If God's will is constantly being accomplished in this world, in the righteous and the wicked, he hates some and loves others, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, he hardens Pharaoh, how can he still judge me? And then we've got uh, 20 chapters with Paul gently trying to explain why God could judge someone? No. We have one verse saying, who do you think you are to even question God? Right, Jerry? Remember? I do that for the glory of God. Romans 9.20, nay but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Who do you think you are for asking that question? Please hear it. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not say, I'm sorry sorry that you misunderstood me. Let me help explain it a little bit so that you might be able to swallow it a little more easily. Let me break this big, giant horse pill of truth into little tiny tablets that you might be able to swallow. 
This is the God we worship. This is the God of the Bible. Amen. This is the God of the Bible. Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? If you think it's unfair that everything done in this universe accomplishes my will, and yet I judge every sinner for his transgressions against my revealed will, if you find a problem with that, shut up and submit to it. Who art thou that repliest against God? We have never met a being like that, and you never will in this earth, except in the pages of this book and when we stand before him. One second before him, you'll regret every time you have ever questioned the way God does things. One more verse, Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. Oh, did he take these Jews apart? He conceded. He pointed out that they were all liars and they shouldn't be looking at just a few problems in their nation. When they questioned his righteousness, he told them, God forbid. How would he ever be able to judge the world? You're destroying the very nature of God that he's revealed in your own scriptures. Well, it's not fair to me personally. Well, then we just might as well go ahead and sin all that we can so that we can work more good of God. Is that what you're trying to say to me, Jew? You know, I've been slandered with that. Are you trying to slander me with that as well? Your damnation is just if you want to think that way. That's Romans 3, 1 through 8. How do, what do I want to leave this with? I want to go outside and tell the blessed God of heaven that he is great and glorious and he can do with me whatever he wants to. And in a song that we sing, if, his, if he sends my soul to hell, his righteous law approves it well. Right. Is there any unrighteousness with God if he sends me to hell? There is absolutely no unrighteousness with God if he sends me to hell. And I know that having that spirit because of Psalm 51 is the greatest evidence that I can have that I'm not going to be sent to hell. Look at Isaiah 45. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. Are you with me on this? There is no God beside me. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Do you like this kind of a God? That I am the Lord and there is none else and there is no God beside me. Amen. And I create and make peace and create evil. That's not sin. That's judgment and trouble upon men. Then he says in verse 9, to those that might want to get a little upset about that, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Look at that exclamation point. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. A potsherd is a broken piece of pottery. And do you know what this verse says about the dignity of the human race? It says that we're all a bunch of pieces of broken pottery. And if you want to argue with a broken piece of, uh, if you want to argue with someone, then argue with another broken piece of pottery, but don't argue with the potter. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? God makes the comparison to parents saying, Why would you make me so short? Well, they didn't have anything to do with it. They were smiling under the sheets one night and you came out and you were 5'6". We can't help that. But to blame your parents for it was a terrible, profane thing to say to parents. But the Lord put it there as an example of speaking against Him as well. 
What do I have to say to anybody that wants to question the way God does things? Why don't you take up your argument with another broken piece of pottery? They're sitting all around you and they live all around you and they go to school with you. But don't question God, whose damnation is just. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Paul's going to go back to his first verse about the advantage of the Jews. Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. There was no advantage to being a Jew when it came to salvation. There were plenty of other advantages, but there was no advantage when it came to salvation. Then he will take their scriptures in verse 9 through 20 and take their own scriptures, quote, 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 from different places and pound them with their own scriptures, that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, They are all together become unprofitable. They are all gone out of the way. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he will finish the condemnation of Gentiles and Jews. And then he will give us a Savior. Do you know the only mention we've had of Jesus in chapters 1, 2, and 3 from the 18th verse to where we're headed is in the 16th verse of chapter 2. And this is all that it says. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men... By Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. The only Jesus Christ that we've met so far between 118 and 320 is the judge, Jesus Christ. The Savior, Jesus Christ, is in verse 21. And thank you, Lord, for that. But remember, Paul had enemies. Paul had to take apart Jewish confidence. He He isn't wanting to take apart ours. We aren't trusting in our flesh. We are not trusting in the law of Moses. He'll get to the good stuff soon. And then we will trust in the second Adam, who has not only died for us when we were his enemies, but he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he's made the atonement for us. And Romans 5 is just jam-packed full of good things. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and cause us to tremble with rejoicing before him.